Well, uh, Marion and I were watching television this week, and uh, a guy came on television around my age, he looked like, uh, 35, 36, and, um, uh, and he, had, he had an earring in his ear. So I said, uh, you know, we're just sitting there, we're quiet, and I said to Marianne, I'm thinking about getting an earring. <laughs> and uh, there was silence, and uh, then she said, what? And I said, uh, you know, I, I've, been, I've been thinking that I may, I may want to get a, a, an earring, just a stud in my ear. And she stopped, and she turned, and she looked at me, and she said, who are you? <laughs> Have you ever used that term before? And I was, she knew I was, you know, it was out of character, and, you know, probably I was joking with her. But, you know, we've all used that term. You used it maybe when you walked into your 13-year-old daughter's room, and it was clean, and you didn't have to threaten her, you didn't have to, you know, say, I'm going to destroy your social life, and it was all clean without, you know, and you looked at that little girl, 13 years old, and she looks like she's five to you, and you go, who are you, right? Um, you use the term when someone acts in a way that just doesn't, just doesn't even make sense. It's like, you know, out of character, out of what you've seen in the past, you know, out of what she or he should be doing. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians has been addressing a church whom he believes are, is, you know, consists of mostly Christians. He, he really feels that. We read chapter 1. If you haven't been here for this series, uh, he, he basically knows he's writing to mostly Christians uh, who had problems, a lot of problems. In fact, as he sat down to write this church, after hearing some of their struggles, he, in effect, turns to them, I think, especially here, and he goes... Who are you? You know, what, what, are you, what are you guys doing? Don't you guys know who you are? What I'm hearing doesn't make any sense. You are acting out of character. We need to talk. So I think it's a way to shake them up a bit and to get them to really look at themselves. He writes in verse 9, and if you don't have your Bibles, uh, there's a Bible in front of you, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but it's always good to look in our Bibles. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 9, he said this, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, we've already talked about this in the past before in this series. Uh, where Paul was not talking about sinless perfection here, or it would mean that nobody was saved. It would mean that Paul's not saved, and he's not going to heaven, right? He was talking about a persistent lifestyle choice or choices, uh, you know, and that basically were persistent rebellion against God and against God's word, which would, if that continues over a long period of time, would increasingly call into question any prior confession of faith. Now, folks, after a while, nouns become labels when folks continue in their sinful lifestyle with no intention of repenting or charting a new course in their life. Sally's a gossip. Not that she has gossiped, or sometimes gossip. Sally's a gossip. Harry's a swindler. Paul, as he wrote to them, couldn't tell, you know, at times whether he was addressing people who were kind of in transit, like, like everybody. Like, you know, they were part of the kingdom, they were born again, they were changing ever so slowly, or was he talking to people who really were not part of the forever family at all? 
They kind of only looked like, you know, Jesus said the wheat and the tares grow together. Sometimes you can't even tell them apart. You know, they sing and they, they recite scripture and they do everything and they, they, they know some of the lingo. But you know what? The spirit of God doesn't dwell in them. And that's what really makes a, a Christian. If the spirit of God is dwelling inside of them. And he basically said the only way that you can know that, whether someone's a Christian or not, is to check and see whether their actions are an aberration or a lifestyle that they've taken on. You know, Paul's looking at them. He says, you know, sometimes I'm not sure whether you guys are simply acting out of character or if you are acting like people who live outside of the kingdom because you really still are outside of the kingdom. One of the actions that the wrongdoers, basically in the NIV to say wrongdoers, it means lawbreakers, those who break the law. One of the actions that the wrongdoers were engaged in was homosexuality. History, again. Almost everyone in the Corinthian culture said that homosexuality was a non-issue. It was just, it's like, we don't even talk about that. We know, we know it's fine. It's cool. Everybody's cool with that. We don't even discuss that anymore. It was universally accepted in that culture. Uh, Densi Rivera sent me a, where, Densi, where are you? Usually up there, right? Densi sent me a, an article that was just so good this week. Long article on how Judaism, Christianity, really changed uh, the sexual mores of the entire world. Like before that, there was, no, there was no words for like pedophilia or anything like that. It was whoever, wherever, whenever, basically. Uh, it, it had to do with property rights. It had to do with all kind of stuff like that. It, it was, it was, not that I had never heard this before, but I, I heard it from a Dennis Prager. He's a, he's a kind of theologian. He's a radio talk host and everything else. But it, was, it made it so crystal clear that, you know, in Corinth in that time, they're not talking about this like it's something that needs to be dealt with. It was universally accepted. And like so many other things we were talking about, when they came into the church, when these people went from the pagan culture, coming into the church now, the Corinthians dragged their belief and dragged their practices with them. Now, folks, a large majority of people in our own culture now say that homosexuality and a homosexual lifestyle should be accepted by society. And I'm not going to spout a bunch of statistics. I looked at them all this week. I was going over reams of statistics. You look at it yourself. The younger you are, the more likely you are to say, yeah, you know what? This is a non-starter. We don't care about that. Growing acceptance of homosexuality over the past three decades paralleled an increase in public support for same-sex marriage, which in June of 2015 established its legality as we know in all 50 states. And while in Corinth, the acceptance of same-sex relations was as old as the Republic itself, here in the United States, it happened with lightning speed. Lightning. As far as many people are concerned, the discussion is officially over. It's time to move on to other things. And that is not just the sentiment of the general public. Folks, 40% of people who describe themselves as evangelical Protestant Christians believe that homosexuality should be accepted and they agree with the general population that at this point we need to just move on. But it's difficult to read the passage that Liz just read and just move on. So we need to talk about it. Now I know a few of you are saying right now, 
uh, you know, there's 10 things the apostle mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. There's 10 things. Why are you picking a homosexuality? Why, you pick, why, why, why do you, you know, kind of solidify your, your thoughts and your preaching today on that? Well, there's several reasons why I, I do. I can answer your question. But the reason I pause, the one I would give you today, is that as I've looked over the passages, these passages over the past few weeks and in preparation a long time ago, I noticed something. I noticed that there has never in my lifetime ever been a groundswell of support for approval of any of the other nine. No matter what age or race or background or religious or non-religious background you come from. I think that you would have to look for a while to find any sort of group or people who had gathered together to be more accepting or wanting to culture to become more accepting of corporate or public greed. You know, greed is good. You know, this isn't, what's the name of that movie? Yeah, Wall Street. You know, greed is good. No, most people say it's not. You know, you got a few guys that they, but most people say no. How many parents say to their children, honey, listen, you know, uh, uh, Mr. So-and-so is a swindler. We're not swindlers, they're swindlers, but you know what? That's just the way they are. I mean, there's nothing we could do about it. How many town councils do you think you would find in the United States would say, you know what this town needs? This town needs some more thieves and drunks and slanderers. That's what we're missing, you know, in this town. Far from being accepted, those lifestyles are condemned even in secular culture. But that's not true of homosexuality. So I would like to try and address this issue this morning with candor and truth and directness, but most of all, with grace. And I would like to do it that way, not because I'm such a wonderful person, but because that's how the scripture deals with it. In fact, that's how our God deals with it, and it's how he deals with us. So I hope if you are tempted to leave mid-message that you will hear me out to the very end. Now, what makes this whole thing, as I was thinking about it and preparing for it this week, um, what makes it all the more difficult is I know that there are many people who are living in an openly homosexual lifestyle or who are same-sex attracted, who are convinced that the church and Christians are the enemy. That, that when some Christian looks at them, they're seeing them with a great, wide, moral bullseye painted on their backs. And I know these hypocrites are going to say, you know, drone on and on about loving the sinner but hating the sin. But you know what? I know in my heart that they would be just as pleased if God condemned me to death right now. Sooner the better. See? And while that's a gross generalization, the church sometimes, folks, more than sometimes, the church has often given them good reason to feel this way. How do I know that? Why, why is it that even though firmly entrenched within the life and confines of local churches sometimes, those who struggle with same-sex attraction would never dream of confiding in church leadership or sharing in a small group setting about their struggle? It is the best kept secret in their lives. Why? Because they fear that their darkest suspicions about the reception that they'll receive will come true. That grace, though a beautiful concept, is just merely a concept, not an everyday gift that's extended from the hands of men and women who have experienced the same grace in their own lives. And over the years at the Crossing Church, there have been some people who have worked up the courage to confide in me 
and others of our leaders to the fact that they were actively living in a a homosexual lifestyle or they were desperately, seriously drawn to it. And when a few people come, folks, you know there's a lot more. You know there is. Even so, I think that it was and is, probably this morning, a relatively small percentage of our overall congregation. See, I suspect that overwhelmingly, uh, this is a heterosexual group that we have here today. Always have been, always will be. And yet, I have to say, at the risk of losing you, the larger group this morning, uh, I really want to speak to someone else, okay? I want to direct my comments to that smaller group the group who are living in active homosexual lifestyles or who are desperately drawn with same-sex attraction. See, I want to speak to you specifically today because I know you're here. And God has told me I need to speak to you. There was a popular television show set in New York City uh, which focused on the relationship between best friends and roommates. Will Truman, played by... Eric McCormick, and a, a gay lawyer, and Grace Adler, Deborah Messing, a straight interior desi- designer. And for eight seasons, beginning in 1998, it was one of the most popular and, and widely rewarded television shows uh, on TV, and one of the most influential in swaying public opinion to LGBT issues, according to an article I read this week by former Vice President Joe Biden. It was called Will and Grace. And it recently was revived. These guys are making millions and millions of dollars. They can't think of anything else but come up with old tales. They're, they're reviving Murphy Brown, I heard. It's like, can you think of anything new? But I guess not. I digress. Anyway, um, there's new, it's, on, it's on again. And again, it, it's, it's amazingly, and I think it's really shocked everybody and shocked the guys who thought about reviving it. It's, it's, it's heading to the top of the ratings. Will, you know, think about this. Will and grace is our culture's answer to homosexuality. The title says it all. The culture says that homosexual people need to exercise their will, courageously choosing to embrace their orientation and fulfill their desires. Heterosexuals, on the other hand, says the culture, need to exercise grace, generally accepting and even affirming same-sex intimacy and same-sex relationships. Brian Wilkinson, a former classmate of mine, said this. He wrote, it's a a simple and appealing message that plays great on prime time, but it's not good enough for the men and women God loves and designed for lasting sexual fulfillment and joy. It's not enough. Plays good on television, but not in real life. So let's go beyond the will and grace of TV fame, and let's talk about the will and grace of God for just a few minutes this morning. Uh, As we do, I want you to think about a couple of questions. Here are the questions. Is it possible for a person to be a committed, faithful Christian and still struggle with confused sexual identity and desires? Second, is homosexual behavior in a loving, committed relationship a viable option for fully devoted followers of Christ? I want to talk about that this morning. First, God's will. 
When we speak about the will of God in male and female sexual relationships, you need to go back what Liz just read for us, the very beginning of the book, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2, because it's in there uh, amongst other passages in Scripture we're not going to look at, that the Bible leaves very little room for honest debate in terms of God's loving desires and God's loving design for sexual expression, for marriage, the marriage union, and for family structure in general. And listen, it is a very, very positive message. It said this, I'll read it again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And I look at this and I see at least three really, really positive, really, really good things here, folks. Number one, uh, difference is good. The Bible says that difference is good. The first thing we see, and we're not going into great detail with any of these, okay? We can, maybe we'll do a series at some point, but at least you can see that God said that the the difference between men and women is good. He created them in two varieties, human beings, male and female. He could have made 15 different varieties. I don't know what they'd look like, but he just made two. Two distinct image bearers of God, each bearing a distinctive dimension of God's character, the masculine and the feminine. Men and women, listen, uh, there was a very famous book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, you know, and it tried to say in the book that, oh, men and women are just so different. Listen, here's the deal. Men and women in most things are very, very similar. You know, they don't understand, oh, women don't understand justice. What are you, crazy? You know, men don't, they they just can't, there's never emotion. That's ridiculous. So in most things, men and women are very, very similar, but they are different in other things in some very key areas. God's design for gender difference, listen, and again, we're not getting into it, his design for gender difference is a good thing. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 says. Male and female, he created them. He could have made male and male. Or, you know, it would have been great if he had, like, Adam and nine other guys. They could have played full-court basketball all day, five on five, back and forth, and never having to stop, never having to do anything else. But he made them one man and one woman. Difference is good. Something else it says. Sex is good. God came up with the idea of men and women having sexual relations. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. Now, being united means many things in the context, but without any doubt at all, no one, no one disputes this. It's talking about being united physically. Their bodies were constructed in such a way so as to be for one another. And he made them to express themselves sexually as a man and as a woman. 
The sexual oneness was meant as a means of not only having, yes, having children and filling the earth, procreating, no doubt, absolutely yes, but also as a way to express the tenderness of the relationship and to form a, a, a psychological and spiritual bond between the two. We talked about it a little bit last week. This was God's idea. It's not something we need to hide from. God thought of it, okay? We see from this passage that God contextualized the expression of tenderness and the procreation of children within the context of marriage. So here's the, here's the third good thing. Ready? Marriage is good. Marriage is good. God's model has always been in every culture, in every society, in all ages since creation for one man and one woman to propagate the race and to enjoy and to express their loving desires sexually and to be drawn together as one in complementary context of marriage. The complementary context of marriage. And he set that in motion in the garden, and it has never changed. Now, here's the genius of marriage. The genius of marriage is one plus one equals one, which is lousy math, but it's really great theology. One man plus one woman equals one flesh perfectly suited for one another. And it doesn't work that way with same-sex relationships. One man plus one man equals two men. There's no complementary nature, so there's no oneness. Theologian John Stott points out that when God created the woman, he did it by taking something out of the man. And in marriage, he brings a man and a woman back together to reclaim the, reclaim the fullness of the divine image, masculinity and femininity, together. No such human takes place when members of the same sex come together. Can people of the same sex have intimacy and can they have companionship? Can they even love one another? David and Jonathan. I mean, you know... Uh, there's, there's many examples. Can they have those things, members of the same sex? Absolutely, but they can never be one. Never. And oneness is what marriage is all about. Thinking biblically about homosexuality, you know what it means? It means saying yes. It means saying yes to gender. It means saying yes to sexuality. It means saying yes to marriage. God's design for human beings is that they should embrace and express their God-giving identity as male and female. God's design for sexuality is that it be a procreative thing and an intimate celebration of love within the context and the protection of covenant vows that one takes in marriage. God's design for marriage is that it is to be a covenant of love between a man and a woman in which God's vision for oneness is vividly expressed and vividly experienced. Now, the Bible, that, that's positive, 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 positive. The Bible also says very clearly some pretty clear negative things about homosexual union. Um, Leviticus chapter 18 Verse 22 says, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Repeated almost word for word in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Now, some have argued that that was the Old Testament emphasis on the old, the 
Old Testament. Pastor Tim, I've heard you preach before. You have said that there are certain parts of the Old Testament law that, you know what, we no longer follow. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. You know what, we, we, we were, we're allowed to eat pork, blah, blah, this, that, the other thing. Yeah, okay, I understand that. All right, I, I get it. But what do you make of what they say in the New Testament? What do you make of what Paul said? This same author in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what do you make what he says, for instance, in Romans chapter 1? And in Romans chapter 1, he is making a case for the fallen nature and failures of the entire human race. Everybody, all of you, all of me. Okay, and this is what he says. He says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Because of this, God gave, gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And as I said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which was read, I'm not going to read it again, he gives a rather comprehensive list of things that separate us from God, that degrade the image of God in us, that undermine human society, as well as bringing pain and destruction on ourselves and people around us. Now, I know, listen, I, 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 I've done enough reading. I get it. There has been, over the past 40 years, a desperate attempt among mainstream Protestant denominations to twist and turn traditional biblical interpretation so that the clear teaching of Scripture is negated. They have said that the Apostle Paul, in particular, they don't even blame him. They just said the guy was unaware. I mean, he really didn't get it. You know, he couldn't understand airplanes and rockets and nutrition and stuff like that. He, he's just, he doesn't understand modern concepts. Modern concepts uh, like sexual orientation, which could only be understood through modern psychology and sociological analysis. See, he, it's not really his fault. He just didn't know better. Only in modern times have biblical scholars tried to suggest with a straight face that the Bible is unclear on the issue of homosexuality and that the church must forfeit its traditional understandings of the relevant biblical texts only in modern times. God's word is not unclear. The biblical injunction concerning homosexual acts are that they are inherently sinful with wide-ranging implications for the family, for the church, and our society at large. Homosexuality is rebellion against God's good and perfect plan for his creations. And when I say that, I know I have just said something that have pierced the hearts of some of you. That it was so difficult, and I do not say it doing this at all. If you know anything about us, that's not our style because it's not God's style Many recoil at declarative words like that. But i got to tell you something right now. Truth is divisive. And if we do not disseminate truth, how can we ever express true biblical love and concern for others? See, love demands that I tell the truth. Truth demands that I tell some of us here the eventual consequences of the path that you are walking down. At the same time, I know that homosexuality is a terribly complex matter. I know that. 
And I will not insult you by saying that I know just what you're going through. I know just how you feel. And yet I think I know a little bit. I think I know just, just a little bit having spoken to you. And I think I can say a little bit. Uh, and, you know, having read papers and books and written some stuff. You know, why sometimes men are attracted to men and women are attracted to women. Again, okay. Outside, I was telling our worship team, we're praying before the service, you know what? Pray for me because almost any sin that's mentioned in the Bible, I have been tempted, involved or tempted or something, but this is not one that I've ever been tempted from. So, but, so I preach is one not from that side and now on this side. And I, I understand that, but I still, I still need to bring forth the word of God and the truth of what it says. And after having read, you know, uh, uh, a bit about this, I, th- I know that one of the reasons, uh, a contributing factor, is the misconception that this tendency is inborn, that it was part of the original programming at birth. And yet, as I have studied, it seems that every time a headline screams out, I read one this morning, I read one this morning, gay gene found. Or, or, or brain structure key to same-sex attraction. The studies have been weighted down with a trunk load of asterisks pointing to a small sampling in the study or the inability to duplicate the findings, a failure to meet basic criteria for establishing scientific fact uh, or, or, or faulty methodology, or the fact that the researchers on the project began the project at the outset with the mindset that they wanted to prove a hypothesis. They already came to the conclusions before they ever engaged in the study. And after reading quite a bit on this, I have come to this conclusion. As far as I can tell, there has never been a scientific study that has proved a genetic or physiological cause of homosexuality that has stood up under any sampling of scrutiny. Some of the best-known studies. uh, Later, the, the guys who were publishing the studies had to repudiate their own findings. See, I believe that life circumstances point people many times in the direction of a certain path, but I don't believe they were born that way. And there are, well, let me ask you, are there individuals who have a homosexual orientation that can be brought to the surface, their orientation brought to the surface by psychological factors, by personal experiences? You know what I say? I say yes. I say absolutely But there is evidence to believe that several other things may prep someone, may introduce a person to the path which they later walk down. Things like a severe strain between child and parent of the same sex, especially in the case of male homosexuality, where a very hurtful experience with a father, you know, who uh, very often, very often is a contributing factor. It's not the only thing, but it's a contributing factor. A distant, absent, raging, disapproving father or a a shaming, smothering, controlling, emotionally crippling mother, or both. Usually there's some sort, many times, there's some sort of deep family dysfunction present. Very often, there's a cataclysmic event, like a, a sexual violation, incest, molestation, especially if the violation was with a trusted friend, an authority figure, or especially their own family member. Many times, in a number of cases, a homosexual uh, can point directly back to a time when they were sexually vulnerable and they were confused. 
when they were living in fear and doubt and not relating appropriately at home, and, 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 and they were vulnerable when Uncle Harry or the girl down the block introduced them to the enlightening thrills of same-sex sexual expression. Depending on who you read, folks, depending on who you read, you check it out, don't take my word, don't take my word. Depending on who you read, between 70 and 80% of lesbians were sexually violated in some way. And when that happens, especially early on in life, there is confusion that often leads to serious, long-lasting consequences. Do you know this? Do you know that most junior high and high school boys and girls, if you speak to them, they don't want to be gay? They don't, they, they don't want to. Most don't even talk about it. They struggle alone in silence. And often, if they do uh, courageously express their struggles with someone in the church, the response is, well, you know what? Pray about it. Just, just pray some more about it. But folks, i got to tell you something. They need more than that. I believe that individuals may not choose to have homosexual feelings, but they do choose to act upon those feelings or to help in overcoming them and seeking help to overcome them. I remember some years back getting a call late on a Saturday night from someone, a voice on the other end of the phone, who was desperate. And he said, I'm on my way to New York City right now. I'm on my way to hire a male prostitute. And I said to him, you do not have to do this. You can turn off the next exit and go back home. And I prayed with him on the phone, and he did turn around. And the only reason he turned around was not because some guy told him to, but because his friend who had developed a relationship with him and who he knew cared about him and loved him, that that was the guy on the other end of the phone asking him to do that. That's why. Homosexual orientation is no different than any other kind of orientation somebody could have towards a particular behavior or a particular lifestyle that may or may not be outside of God's will. For some, the orientation may be pride. Maybe it's alcohol abuse, gambling, a quick temper, slander, gossip. All of us have certain aspects of our nature that shape who we are and make us prone to certain types of temptations and certain types of activities. There may be an area that I struggle with all my life that you go, I don't, I don't struggle with that at all, and vice versa. But listen, you need to remember this. An orientation towards something is a lot different than legitimizing it. It's a lot different. Now, I know those who I'm speaking to this morning I know that you've been helped by the media and our culture's increasing acceptance of homosexuality and their constant putting it in, the, in a positive light. They have managed to sell this idea to a great many Americans, therefore making homosexuality almost fashionable, uh, uh, raising formerly beha aberrant behavior to the status of an alternative lifestyle. And you know what? That happens by design. And it may have numbed you to the truth. But let me say this, as a Christ follower, if people say to me, your views are as repugnant as racism and anti-Semitism, you are homophobic, 
You are narrow-minded. You are a religious crusader and bigot. I have to say, as a Christ follower, in a clear, concise, loving voice, that the biblical paradigm is clear. I must trust the word of God enough and the wisdom of God enough and say, this is God's way. Here I stand. I could do no other. And I might be ready to courageously absorb bigotry, you know, charges of bigotry and stupidity and that I'm lacking in love and intolerant. I may be ready or maybe I'm not. Maybe I need to ask God, you know, give me some courage in my backbone because this stuff ain't easy. When you know what? When the entire tide is running against you, it takes a lot of courage. It really does. As a, as a Christ follower, I have to be about building bridges. My God is unambiguous in his call for his people, including me, to keep their hearts open, to keep their arms wide, and to receive strugglers of all kinds and all stripes. But I know that if I love the sexual struggler, then truth dictates that I draw a line in the sand to those who would superimpose on me their social agenda on clear biblical mandate. And it is beyond compelling to me when I see that every single reference in Scripture about homosexuality condemns it without question. And Paul, looking at this church that he loves, speaks the truth and basically says to them, you are not who you were, so start pursuing who you are. This is God's will for homosexuals, and I might add, for all people to confine their sexual expression within the confines of, of the marriage bed that consists of one man and one woman. That's the will of God. What about the grace? What about the grace of God? You are faced, the group I'm speaking to this morning, you are faced with a choice. Your heavenly father says, don't go. I have information you, you don't know about. You don't understand. You can't see. The father is a lover of the souls of men and women, so he tells the truth about those who are caught up in poor choices. Let me say to those struggling with same-sex attraction or in a relationship with a same-sex partner right now, there is grace. There is a path of grace that is wide open to you. Wide open. The Crossing Church, if you didn't know, is filled with an assortment of people who have messed up pretty thoroughly. Got to tell you, I know we all look good, but we've messed up pretty bad. People who have crashed and burned, but by God's grace were picked up and made to walk. People who even now struggle with intense moral fallops. People who worship things other than the true God. People who have been unfaithful to their spouse. Folks who have cheated on their income taxes, who, though making a good salary, often think and say to themselves a hundred times in a week, it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough, and they literally are working themselves to death. People who too often have tried to make sense of some senseless situations with alcohol and even drugs. People who, to make themselves feel better as a way of life, seem to tear down others. And the thought that maybe if I tear them down, now we'll be on a level playing field. But I have to tell you something else too. You're also surrounded by people 
many, many people who by God's grace have recognized their sin and who are determined to move to higher ground, to head and to direct their life in a God-honoring path. Listen, those of you who struggle with same-sex attraction, you're in bad company here at the crossing, but you're also in the best company I can even imagine because through the power of Christ, we have found hope, hope for everyone and grace for all. You are in a place this morning that believes in rather than shoveling sin under the unsuspecting carpet that we need to deal with it, to expose it. Instead of denying and rationalizing our sinful behavior, we want to discover it. We want to bring it to God. We want to ask for forgiveness and become changed people. So the good news is, folks, those of you kind of in the midst of us, you're forgivable as I was forgivable, as we all are forgivable. I am glad that God is a forgiving God because I am so prone to sin. Psalm 147 says this, He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. When we know that we are all forgivable, it goes a long, long way toward healing the heart that has been broken. In Lamentations 3, it says, Because of the Lord's, the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He is sympathetic. He is understanding. He knows my frailties. He knows all about my faults. He knows what makes me tick. He knows how I am wired because he is the one that wired me. One of the most beautiful truths you're going to need to learn in the Christian life is this. God is very patient. More patient than I think he should be with some people, but I'm so glad when it's me that he's, he's really, really patient. His mercies are new, how often? Every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I know that there are people here this morning in this congregation who are homosexual or who fear that they are, who are going through or who are going through gender confusion fueled by the climate of our times. But you have sat through this message. Most of you have. And uh, I got to say, that's not just laudable. I think that's brave. I think it is very brave and I think it's honorable. And I want you to know this. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to know that you matter to God. That God really, really loves you. He really does. He loves you right where you are and wants to come in and bring you to a place of peace and forgiveness and newness. God's word is clear as to the consequences of all unrighteousness, including homosexuality. Paul says it is death. But you are not beyond the power of God to change. He can and will restore through the unconditional love and unconditional grace of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that destructive behaviors are not easy to break, Ask any addicted smoker, drinker, consumer of pornography, on and on it goes. 
It may be the most difficult challenge you will ever face, but there is hope in Christ and in his power, his resurrection power to change us. Because there is a blood-stained cross in our history. And you know what? That says everything you need to know about what God thinks about you. Everything you need to know. And there is an empty tomb. And I think that says everything you need to know as to whether God is powerful enough to help you change. Something else. You need to know that you matter to me. And you matter to this church, the Crossing Church. You really, really do. Sometimes we've reacted to you in ignorance in the past and fear. But when you take a step back, we are reminded once again that we are a collective bunch of moral screw-ups here at the Crossing Church. So you are among friends. You're among friends. But the one thing so many of us have found, and I don't know if you have, I don't know if you have, is that our sins have been forgiven. And we have peace with God because of Christ. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. God wants to bring you to himself today. Things can change. You can be different. God calls us to become something we aren't naturally. You know what, you know what that is? To be like him. That is so unnatural to the fallen nature. So let me go back and ask those questions again. So we draw to a close now. Let me ask those questions that I asked at the very beginning. Is it possible for a person to be a committed, faithful Christian and still struggle with confused sexual identity and desires? You know what I would say? I would say yes. Absolutely yes. In the same way that we heterosexual-oriented people struggle with fidelity of mind and soul and body. Is homosexual behavior in a loving, committed relationship a viable option for fully devoted followers of Christ? I would say no. It's not. Paul says it clearly at the end of the passage in 1 Corinthians 6. In verse 9, 11, he says, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. God has forgiven your sins. God has forgiven your guilt. You were sanctified. He's, he's made you clean in his sight because you've fallen upon his mercy that is gained by anyone through faith in the fact that Jesus Christ has already paid the ultimate penalty for your sins. You were justified, legally exonerated forever. And now we have a lawyer by the name of Jesus Christ who pleads our case before the high court, always and forever, showing his hands and showing his feet and showing his side if ever a question comes up as to whether our guilt or innocence. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Grace means that you can be healed of your sexual woundedness whether others inflicted it upon you or you brought it on yourself. It doesn't have to haunt your heart or your relationships for the rest of your days. Grace means that you can overcome whatever distorted, destructive desires and habits have been robbing you of real joy and real peace and real fulfillment. It's going to take time. I'm not going to make you know, any promises about that. It's going to take teaching. It's going to take practice. It's going to take support and probably even a failure or two or more. But you can overcome it with God's help. You can be free of sin's mastery over you. 
Since you're not who you were, Paul said, start pursuing who you are. You are no longer there. You have been translated into his marvelous kingdom over here. Since you are not who you were, start pursuing who you are. You're a different person. You have the Holy Spirit in you to help and sustain you. And you have a church that will walk with you.